Welcome to the Agile Wire, where professional scrum trainers Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky discuss agile topics. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Boobles and Jeff Molesky. And we are recording. All right, Mr. Boobles, kick us off, man. All right, we got Stefan Wyden uh, joining us today on the podcast. So, Stefan, we're going to talk about psychological safety today. So, tell us a little bit more about your background with that and like why people should care there, why people should listen to what, what we're going to talk about today. Well, maybe we'll start with the definition of psychological safety, because while it's becoming, you're hearing it more and more in the news and, and so on, it's still not very well known by everybody. So psychological safety is a belief that within your team, within your work environment, you can speak up, say what's on your mind and, and mm -hmm. gosh, even admit mistakes. And you're able to do that without any fear of reprimand. So you don't feel like, um, you know, there's going to be some sort of negative consequence for you speaking up, which so often is actually true in environments where there's low psychological safety. So with that in mind, you know, with that uh, as a definition, I guess you can say, um, I got interested in psychological safety because I've been in the world of coaching and leadership for well over 15 years. And what I discovered in rolling out coaching for leaders and managers within organizations is that by and large, those leaders and managers were all trying to foster better teamwork. Even they were using slightly different language and words to describe what it is that they were trying to achieve with an outcome. But by and large, looking back with 2020 vision, I was able to say, yeah, all these folks are trying to foster psychological safety. So when I read about the concept, it really just kind of clicked. And one of the reasons why it really clicked for me is that psychological safety can be measured because as as much a proponent I am for coaching, executive coaching, leadership coaching, et cetera, I also have a, this you know, uh, perspective of wanting to make sure our, is what we're doing actually effective and how effective? And so then when I discovered psychological safety, I realized that's something we can measure before and after coaching and, and during to determine how good the coaching is being, what kind of an impact it's having on the organization. So that's the story into psychological safety. So uh, I want to dive into the measuring quick first, but maybe just uh, a little bit more like, tell me, tell me more about like what you're doing with psychological psych. Like, how do you, I don't know, how have you learned about it? Who are you working with? Like, how has that come to be? Like, how have you gained the knowledge you have right now uh, on psychological safety? Yeah. So my journey started, uh, Basically, in 2019, I read the book, The Fearless Organization, written by Amy C. Edmondson. So she is a Harvard prof. She's been researching psych safety for 20, 25 years. And so she's really the thought leader and the real expert in this space. And, uh, and after reading her book, I reached out to her and I said, hey, I run this organization, numi.com. We have thousands of coaches all over the world and we want to provide training for our coaches to be able to use your measure, use your uh, assessment to measure psychological safety. And it basically took off from there. So we, we got a handful of coaches certified and they're now using the tool around the world and, and as are we, and we're using that tool to help organizations foster psychological safety. Because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept, but you know that which you can measure, you can change. So 
that's what we're doing. We're measuring it and we're, we're changing it. Um, now we're so doing more, more work. Tell us more about also, how you get that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks yeah, for Tell us more about Go the ahead. measurement. Because like, we're, well, the measuring is really, really, I, mean, I can just imagine our listeners being like, they're like, oh, how do I measure that? Because I could see my managers think there's psychological safety, but when I talk to the team members, I don't think there is. So like, how do I validate that? How do I prove that? Um, so tell us more, like, how do you actually measure that, the before yeah. and after? Well, it's both very simple and, you know, that requires a little uh, attention and care. So uh, Amy Emmonson developed an assessment. It's seven questions. So it's super easy to get the answer and to have your people provide information as to their perception of psychological safety. It takes all of, you know, three minutes. Uh, but you also, with any survey, you want to make sure that people are answering the questions openly, open openly and honestly. So you need to make sure that you're setting the stage when you're inviting folks to answer those questions, to prime them, to make sure that they know that their answers are going to remain anonymous. You really want the answers. No one's going to be punished or harassed because of uh, their opinions and, and what they share. And then once we do that, it really becomes a conversation starter because it's really, it, the data is only useful as far as what you do with it. So we collect the data, we put it in the middle of the room, at least an, an anonymized report, and then we say, okay, what are we gonna do with this? How, first of all, how did we get to this score? And uh, that generates a lot of open conversation and a lot of light bulbs tend to go off in those moments where folks are going, oh, I didn't even realize that every time I send out this type of an email, it's causing other people to get stressed and anxious and they think they're making a mistake when that's not the intent at all. So let's change that email or, or that maybe it's a step in a meeting that causes everyone to feel um, a certain way. So we want to address those issues and do something about it. What's the, uh, what's the so what there, though? Um, like, you know, I, I think Boobles and I both have uh, our own personal opinions on why psychological safety is important in any environment, whether you're on in any type of team, whether you're in any type of organization or business or whatever it happens to be. But like for when you're speaking with leaders, when you're speaking with organizations, what what's the so what? Why should I care about this and why should I measure it? Why should I look for it increasing? Mm. I'm glad you brought that up because I sometimes get kind of uh, caught inside the trees and forget that there's this whole forest around me. And, uh, and with the concept of psychological safety, I can certainly dive into the details and we need to see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is psychological safety is known to correlate with high performance, with high performing teams that generate better outcomes. And, and the most notable measure of that is uh, Google and their project, which is called Project Aristotle. So what did they do? They looked at 180 Google teams. They ranked them all. So they knew, okay, here are our best teams and over here are our worst teams. So what's the deal? What makes an effective team? And when they went around their campus and asked folks, executives and leaders and managers, what do you think uh, comprises of um, the most effective teams? They came up with 250 factors and they put all of those different factors against the outcome data that they had, and lo and behold, nothing correlated. So they had to really scratch their heads and go, okay, so it's not team size, it's not the age of the participants, it's not the ethnicity or you know, gender, none of these factors mattered, uh, or at least none of them correlated with, out, uh, with outcomes. 
So what they did is they went to the academic research, they came across Amy Emmonson's work, and they applied the concept of psychological safety to their data set, and lo and behold, it was the number one factor. And why is psychological safety the number one factor? Well, perhaps you're familiar with the term or the, the phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Have you heard that before? Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, N- heads are nodding. So um, yeah. yeah, well, why is that, right? Why, why would culture eat strategy for breakfast? And the reason is because if you have a great strategy, and a bad culture, you're gonna to fail to execute. But if you have a great culture and a bad strategy, what are you gonna do? My, my guess would be you would iterate on the strategy, like you would learn what is not working, what is working and continuously improve on it. Exactly, you'll figure it out. You figure it out. So uh, that's the, the real value of psychological safety is that it's the way teams learn. And it's the way teams adapt because Mm -hmm. when you have full information, when everybody is sharing what it is that they're observing and what it is that they're seeing and objections they might have to prevailing thoughts, then you get better, more efficient decision-making. And when you have better decision-making, you get better outcomes. So in my head, I'm trying to like synthesize this. And I think Jeff, maybe you were, you were going there as well, but if we, If we say that psychological safety leads to openness of of experimentation, that is like we're not, there's no fear of reprisal for when failure happens. And if in a complex environment, we should be expecting that we're going to fail at certain things. Psychological safety is an underlying uh, uh, framework for us to increase experimentation because we're not afraid of failing and thus increase the chances that we're going to be successful at whatever it is that we're doing for each of our different teams in our organization. Like, does that kind of like A to B to C of how we would flow for um, the, the value of psychological safety? Yeah. And maybe it's even simpler than that. I think we're talking kind of theoretically and conceptually, and maybe we need to illustrate it with an example, like a story and yeah. uh, a, a one that's relevant to scrum masters or someone who's a project manager uh, operating an agile team. Um, Just think about, let's say you go out and you're collecting data on, you're developing a new product. Okay. And um, you need to talk to customers or potential customers to try to understand what it is that you're trying to build for them and what they really need. And maybe an idea starts to emerge And yet there's some oppositional voices there. There's some folks that are hearing things that are slightly different. Like if you have a collection of people who are all talking to customers, you want to make sure that that oppositional point of view is heard because it matters and it might affect the way um, decisions are made. There's even a better example, though, um, that I can think of, which is um, Amy Emmonson shares this story about uh, a nurse. And she's in a hospital and it's a neonatal intensive care unit. And um, there's a chart that says this baby infant is to receive such and such a dose. And so she calls up the doctor and it's the middle of the night and says, I'm not totally sure that this dose seems correct. And the doctor says, look, stay in your lane. I'm the expert. Don't challenge me. And... um, just follow the instructions on the chart. 
So the nurse does. Then follow a week later, two weeks later, that same situation happens again, where there's perhaps the wrong dose or the wrong medicine being prescribed for this infant. And what do you think that nurse does? Does she pick up or he pick up the phone? No, right? In this case, like, no, they got reprimanded last time. So that oppositional point of view is not welcome. And in that particular case, it's life or death. So that's, uh, you know, that's a critical story. Whereas in project management, maybe it's not life or death. Hopefully it's not. It depends on your work environment. Um, And yet we are seeing that. We're seeing a lot more companies, let's say like industrial type companies, um, engineering, mining, that kind of thing. Psychological safety is coming to the forefront because for them, uh, at least the folks that are in the HR and leadership development, their number one focus is around incidences occurring at the job site. Incidences being someone gets injured or someone dies. And so for them, it's critical that they foster psychological safety because to mitigate injury, to mitigate uh, dangerous situations, you need to hear from folks. You need to hear from those frontline people who say, yeah, I get it. You have a safety plan, but I'm the person operating the tool. I'm operating the machine and I know this is not safe. Um, and you need that person to be able to speak up and provide that input in order to have a proper action plan, in order to have the best possible mitigation strategy for whatever issues might arise in the future. And, and you can't always predict what those things are going to be. So I think that's, that's the real value, especially for project managers. It's getting that, that information that folks are not necessarily going to give to you if that environment is not fostered. Does that, does that help illustrate it a little bit better, guys? Yeah, I think so. So I'll just think about some stories that I'm thinking about right now. So it's like how we work is really what we should be examining. So if we see, if we don't see psychological safety, one of our, or we don't think we have psychological safety, things we might see. People going out and working on the thing they've been told, not questioning why, right? Could we say that that's, or the outcome or if something deviates, I just do the thing I told, I deliver it, and then my part's done. I don't maybe care about the outcome as well. well. Um, Not questioning um, new ways of doing things, right? So like innovation might be a little stale. We probably hear a phrase, this is the way we've always done it. Um, Those are common ones we we may hear. Um, But if if it's working well, I think if you do have psychological safety, there's a certain level of ownership that everybody has towards the outcome that you're trying to deliver, some type of shared goal that everybody has. And you'll probably see everybody trying to improve at that because, I don't know, people like to master things. They like to get better at things. And if they feel like the organization isn't holding them back, the team isn't holding them back, it's a safe place to fail, they're going to try to just go just outside their bounds of what they can do to, to pick something new up, to learn something new. Um, if they feel like it's not safe, like they might lose <laughs> their job or be reprimanded like you were talking about before. If they try something a little outside of their reach, they're not going to do it, right? Like everyone's trying to protect their household at the same time. So I don't know. What do you think about those like symptoms? Like if I, if I kind of put a little gauge there, like are those things you might look at? Uh, are there others you would add to that list? I think what you described there is great. So uh, I would summarize what you said, Jeff, as politeness. 
or agreeableness. Like if there's an overall sentiment of politeness and agreeableness within your work environment where everyone just kind of nods their head and says, okay, sounds good. Uh Uh-huh. I'll do that. That idea of just doing as you're told and staying in your lane and not challenging what it is that you're doing, then, um, and that's tricky, right? Because as a project manager or as a product owner, you might perceive that as, oh, well, everyone agrees we're all getting along. Okay, no, no, there's no problems here. Because you might think a low performing team is one where clearly people are going to be fighting and, you know, there's, there's not going to be any form of agreement at all. Well, that's not the case, right? With low psychological safety, those environments are really characterized more by silence than anything else or, or mm-hmm. politeness and agreement and just tone, you know, just tone the company line. I'm just, I'm punching the clock. Um, so I would characterize that as, as a, maybe ambivalence is the right word hmm. to describe how people might be feeling. So what would you say to a team that says, well, yeah, my team's quiet, but that's just because they're a bunch of introverts, you know, that's just the way they are. Like, yeah. could that be the case or is that a case of like, they don't really feel safe? Well, I have, you know, I'm, I'm privy to uh, being part of two different teams that are very different. So I have, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a coaching and training team, and I have a software development team. And the software development team, as you can imagine, much more introverted. Everyone is extremely introverted. And on the coaching side, everyone is more boisterous, right? They love working with people, love storytelling, that whole thing. So over here on the left, I have to try to keep focus. And over here on the right, it's like a lot more challenging to make sure everyone is contributing on a regular basis. And even when you put you know, directly ask someone, what do you think about this? There's a a certain uh, reluctance to share because uh, what I've discovered is that folks who are introverted also, they don't like that. They don't like being put on the spot. They want to be a lot more considerate of what they're about to say uh, before saying it. Whereas someone who is, you know, the, the, the person who walks into a room and just starts chatting with everyone, I mean, they'll come up with something that sounds good, <laughs> might not be the best answer, but they'll sure fill any, any silence that's in the room. So, um, I, the way I combat that or, or foster more open communication from those who are introverted is by circulating the agenda well in advance asking specific questions like what are the three things you think we can do better on this project or how might we communicate differently or what was the best thing that we accomplished in the last month whatever questions that you have give folks especially those introverts time to prepare write thing write down their answers and even ask for them to ensure that they write down their answers not that they have to submit them to you but they have it written down somewhere and then the meeting tends to be a lot more productive i'll have those who are most introverted contributing equally as much as those who are the most extroverted. So kind of loop, looping back, we, we, we talked about like, so what, like what, why, why do I care about psychological safety? Um, we talked about measuring it. Um, we talked about uh, in conjunction with that, collecting how we actually get those measurements. Um, but like, cool. How do we actually tactically go in and start to cultivate psychological safety? Um, and I imagine it's a little bit more difficult than going down to the Kroger and picking some psychological safety up off the shelf and just bringing it back home for the team. So 
Um, and, and not looking for you to, to give away the secret sauce or anything, but like, how do you approach this with the teams, with the organizations, with the leaders? Because I'm sure it's different when with different types of conversations. So where do you start? And w- what are some of the tactics that you employ for trying to cultivate more of this? Yeah, um, really good question. And the first step we do, as I've already mentioned, is we we start by assessing psychological safety. And ideally, when we start with an organization, we work with their senior leadership team because they're steering the ship. And we only want to work with organizations that are willing to put, um, you know, money behind what it is that they want to achieve. And that thing ought to be psychological safety or something. They might describe it in a different way, but ultimately, we only want to work with organizations that are going to be committed to creating this kind of uh, speak up work environment. And they can see how it's a strategic initiative. It's not just, you know, oh, that's a nice to have. Let's let's do that for our people. You know, it's kind of this side project. No, it needs to be core to the business. So that's the first kind of, I guess, vetting process that we conduct. And then thereafter, if the organization is in, if they see how it fits in with their strategic goals, then we want to first uh, assess psychological safety and do so in the context of annual or quarterly planning. So that's usually the cadence that we work with teams is uh, to be able to come in as part of their planning. And we talk about psychological safety assess it, measure it, and debrief it at the beginning. So we're really setting the stage for open conversation throughout planning and strategy conversations. Because of course, those conversations are so critical to the direction of the organization, you need to have psychological safety. If you don't, if you're coming into a planning session where maybe you have some founders and then some um, C-suite leaders who have been flown in, that kind of thing, and you, you, you don't have good dynamics there, your, your planning is not going to be very good. It's going to be suboptimal. And then, um, so I'm going to stop there because there's more, but I, I want to hear your feedback or questions about that general uh, starting point. So is this something when you're talking about doing it quarterly or annually, like, okay, it's great to do this on a leadership team that's doing that, that higher level planning of where we're going can only imagine right like in all those rooms if you have psychological safety you're going to trust each other more things are going to get on the table people are going to get aligned like it's going to be a good thing um but how do you get it to everybody inside of an organization i mean does it always have to start with the leaders or can it start in other places like it can start ground up too it can start ground up yeah it can absolutely Um, The way we bring it into organizations, especially larger, more kind of enterprise organizations, they're often conducting a variety of training initiatives throughout the year for various leaders. And what um, organizations do is they come to us and they say, okay, we want to offer some form of psychological safety training. Could you do that for us? And the psychological safety training that we focus on is uh, around interpersonal skills. So our hypothesis and our observed experiences are that the best managers, the best leaders are those that can, um, that have certain interpersonal skills where they can see conflict and they're willing to approach it. They don't pretend it's not there. And they, they just have these, these uh, it's like they're highly attuned to the people in their organization. They see how they're, team members need to be built up 
and and uh, those interpersonal skills are where we go to work and coming back to the definition of psychological safety it's the belief that you can speak up in your work environment and what's going to shape that if you think about what shapes your sense of psychological safety in the moment what you know think about your teams um a team that you've participated in in the past or even presently you know how safe do you feel contributing in the moment depends on well i'll stop there i'll ask the question i would love to hear from you what might influence your sense of psychological safety in that moment i the two things that come to mind for me are past experience that you've had and then other experiences you've seen other people in that same group have so if somebody has been vulnerable in the group it's been received well um, and you know it, it increases the connection with other people in the group, they're probably more likely to do that in the future. It doesn't even have to be me. If I see Jeff doing it on my team, then I know it's safe to do that. So I'll probably follow suit. Um, although likewise, if I take a risk on something and go a step a little bit outside of the bo- my bounds or what maybe some people would think, and if I get like reprimanded or something like that, probably going to push me to be a little more quiet, you know, in the future. So those would be the two things that I would that I would fall to. Anything else you'd add there, Jeff? Um, the the only thing I was I was thinking about was back back to the other just fear of reprisal. Like you know, not to to what you were saying. Like what has happened the last time people or have I spoken up, and then what has been the downstream effects of people who have spoken up. So th- that just what I would be considering. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. So that's exactly why we then focus our training around helping leaders and managers develop the interpersonal skills to make sure that they're always ongoingly creating this environment where when people share, they can actively demonstrate that they hear them, that they understand them. And, and that's, you know, it's easy to say like, Hey, just be a better listener, but it's harder to actually do that in practice. And, and so that's what we really focus on. It's focusing on uh, the name of our training program is called Speak Up and Listen. So we want to he- help leaders make sure that everybody in their team feels like they can speak up. And probably the more important aspect to that is making sure that everyone feels heard when they do speak up. Like you need to acknowledge and, and uh, show appreciation and understanding when people speak up. Does that help? Does that make sense? It it does. And I, as you were talking through it, what I'm kind of curious about is if you have any thoughts or um, experience, wisdom, however you want to phrase it, but you know, you, you have the consultant card and I've, I've in various times in my career, I've too had the the consultant card. Uh, And it's always very interesting working in an organization when you have that consultant card, there's like magical powers that go along with it. Like you have an outsized influence oftentimes on the people that you're talking with. And so what it makes me think about is those of us who don't have the consultant card, right? Like I'm a member of a team or maybe I'm a frontline uh, manager or leader, or maybe I'm somewhere in the middle, right? But, you know, I, I hear about these things. I embrace these things. I really want to help influence the culture of my organization. Like, or, or maybe I'm just a change agent, you know, and, and you know, I want, I want to help move forward with some of these ideas. So what, what is the encouragement? What are some of the tactics that you would uh, part to these in- individuals that are in that position? Yeah, I love that. Uh, it's pointing to that comment we made earlier about, I think you asked, does it always have to start at the top? And 
No, I think you can start somewhere in the middle or somewhere else in the organization. And what in a perfect world within an organization, if you're going to spread psychological safety, you do so organically. You know, you, you, you're not forcing it upon anyone. And instead, you start um, building pockets of psychological safety where people are just looking, going, wow, look at those guys. That looks pretty good. Hmm. <laughs> right? You want to just model the behavior you're looking for. And what we know when you do is that you get better results. People are more engaged. People are contributing better ideas um, more frequently. And so uh, that's what I would do is I would... I would concentrate on, if you're a change agent, concentrate on your team, um, on your circle of influence and say, hey, let's make it a priority for us as a group to operate with psychological safety and make it one of your core values and or, you know, one of the rocks that you're really focusing on um, and then have it expand naturally from there. Um, is that a good answer or a good suggestion? Yeah. Yeah, how, so tell me tactically some things you might do if you're that frontline manager, leader, person on a team. Like, what, what can I do to help foster that, that psychological safety? Well, I think the first thing to do is, like, teach people what it is and why it's important and get alignment on that and have an open discussion. Just foster a lot of open communication. Remember, again, back to that culture eats strategy for breakfast. You don't have to have all the answers. And, in fact, demonstrating some form of humility around it is really good strategy, in fact, or it's a really good tactic. So if you can just say, look, I think this is really important, folks. How do we foster more psychological safety in this team? Anybody have any ideas and have a discussion about it? There's also a series of questions you might be able to ask people like, um, and, and again, remember, especially if there's introverts in the room, put those questions into paper so that folks can write them down, think about it, and then have a discussion about it afterwards. So you might ask questions like, uh, think about a time when uh, something was said or someone did something in the organization that caused you to feel uncomfortable or, or a little bit concerned about your own safety in the organization. Or think about a time when um, you felt like you had contributed something really great and it wasn't appreciated or recognized. You know, these are the types of questions that you can start to ask your team to start to uncover some answers about what might be getting in the way from them feeling psychologically safe and then what can you do about it? You were, you were, uh, you didn't directly say this, but I feel earlier when you were talking about, and I'm really happy that you started out by defining psychological safety. Um, I feel like it's, it's really easy for things to become a buzzword, especially in Agile, in the Agile community. Uh, Boobles and uh, our, our good buddy Bayer talk about that quite a bit, how overloaded it is, how it's just kind of used for everything. So I guess what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, do you have any thoughts or tactics that you use to um, essentially keep it from being a buzzword and or any um, anti-patterns that you might see when people are trying to incorporate this into their environment? The one thing that we've seen a new number of times is uh, what we sometimes label internally psychological safety gone wild. And what transpires is that in the spirit or alleged spirit of psychological safety, folks feel like they can say whatever is on their mind. So I can tell you that you are a jerk. And that, of course, is counterproductive. So we have to remind folks that um, really psychological safety is a set of norms 
right? It's a set, uh, it's a, it's a way of showing up in a team and we need to set those norms. And one of those needs to be around, sure, open communication, but we also have to counter that with respect. We need to make sure that we are maintaining our respect and care for one another. Otherwise, it's all just going to go <laughs> kind of crumble on itself. So we've definitely seen that in the past. And it can be challenging because um, there might be folks that feel emboldened to bring up matters that perhaps um, are not under their influence or, or, or control. So, for example, if you're the you're the owner of an organization and suddenly you have people saying, well, I think we need to earn twice as much money as we do. It's it's kind of like, wait a minute. Um, that's not going to work. Our organization can't afford that. Like, I appreciate that you're saying that, but it's not realistic at all. So what's the middle ground here? <laughs> um, and, and so, and also other issues might get raised that you have to be prepared to be able to talk about. Like maybe it's diversity. Maybe there's not enough diversity in your organization and people are going to say, look, we, how are we going to be a more diverse organization or how are we going to, um, you know, honor, uh, that within our organization, even though, you know, we tend to be mostly white males mm -hmm. and you as an organization, are you prepared to do something about that? So as you were talking, I, I was trying to Google it on the other screen. I couldn't find it, but, um, I, are, are you familiar with radical candor? Sure. Yeah. Kim Scott. So yep. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, um, it's, it's been a long time since I, I, I went through the book, so it's only, you know, I, I was looking for a formal definition, but I couldn't find it real quick. My Google skills are lacking. Um, but I was kind of curious in what you were just saying. Th there seems to be uh, shades of gray in there around how do we encourage people to feel comfortable speaking up, but doing so in a respectful way. Um, so, and I, and I think that was kind of the spirit of radical candor was, I'm going to tell you, you know, the polite truth um, and, and not try to, to, to sugarcoat things. So, I guess what what are your thoughts on you know that anti pattern or that that bad traction that you were just talking about where we still want to be respectful with each other um, but think about the things or the discussions that we're trying to have I don't know if I articulated that really well do you or do you see where I'm going with the question Yeah I see where you're going for sure and and for those who aren't that familiar with radical candor um, I, I guess I'll inform folks to. There's, there's two axes on the radical candor model of giving and receiving feedback. And that is you want to demonstrate that you care personally for the person for whom you're, you're going to give feedback. And you also want to be able to give direct feedback, right? Uh, uh, not criticize them, but be able to give direct feedback. And uh, Kim Scott, her innovation there was she always thought those two things were at the opposite end of a spectrum, right? She thought... You either are kind of a softy and you're not going to give people uh, uh, feedback. And so you care about your folks. And as a result, you're not going to give them any direct, you're not going to challenge them directly. Or you're going to be a total, uh, you know, hard A. <laughs> uh, I don't want to swear on your podcast here, uh, but I think everyone knows what I'm talking about. Like, a, like a, a, a kind of a jerk leader and you're going to challenge people all the time. And what you realize, no, those two things actually can coexist. You can care personally for someone and directly challenge them. And in fact, when you challenge someone directly, you're demonstrating care. You say, I care enough about you to give you this critical feedback that will help you be 
better, more productive, more functional within the team, within the organization. Um, so is that a helpful description of radical candor for folks that <laughs> are listening? Yeah, in fact, thank you. I, I had forgotten the, the, the two, but that was in line with how I had you know, partially remembered it. So thank you for even for me for the refresher. Sure. So, so, so what's the second half there, right? So, okay. So, so what radical candor, um, what we do is, uh, in our training for leaders and managers, again, this is all about helping them improve these interpersonal skills. What we recognize is that there's a big gap between kind of book knowledge, right? Understanding radical candor, understanding how to be a visionary leader and then doing it. And it's almost like we go from reading a book to jumping into the Super Bowl final. <laughs> and we never had a regular season, never mind a preseason. Um, and so what we're trying to do is increase the ability for folks to be able to practice these interpersonal skills. And how do we do that? We do that by having simulated environments within a team that folks can see using their computer and then using their webcam, they have to respond to these stimulus videos. And the stimulus videos are maybe 10 seconds, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, maybe maximum two minutes of some sort of interaction within a team. And then the, it stops and now it's your turn to speak up. And there's a whole host of, of challenging moments because that's what folks need to practice because you never know what you're going to face in a, a real life scenario. We like to call it the flight simulator for interpersonal skills. And what does a real flight simulator do? It, you create all sorts of different environments where you know engine number one is out and there's some sort of storm and you, you're never gonna have those exact moments and scenarios in real life, but what you can train folks in is how to think about and problem solve in those moments so that that becomes kind of uh, a reflex how to think and respond productively with your interpersonal skills is what we train folks in doing so that the next time someone says you bleepity bleep what the hell were you thinking you can respond productively in a way that doesn't just put them in the penalty box and say don't speak up that's evil um, and don't express your thoughts and you need to have a middle ground where you can approach it productively acknowledge that this person has something to say and I need to mine for what it is that they're trying to get across so that their message can be received by everybody rather than just putting a lid on it and saying, you know, that was, that was offside and you should go to the penalty box. <laughs> so is this something like when you were talking about doing like the quarterly um, trainings and stuff like that, like you practice it regularly? Like maybe if it's even the same scenarios or just seeing how we approach it, it's, you know, a third baseman doesn't practice line drives one time. I'm assuming this is something you do, you know, on a regular basis. So when you get into game time, you know, you have a good way of handling it. Yeah, exactly. So we, the, that's not the quarterly thing. You know, that the quarterly involvement is, um, is part of the entire journey and the experience, but that the practice is what happens in between, in between the quarterly sessions. You talked a lot about the... I don't want to distill everything down, but it was like uh, just so much of this is interpersonal skills. Um, are there any, so this just kind of the same question rehash, but I'm kind of curious, are there common stumbling blocks for 
that you see leaders when they're trying to work on these interpersonal skills? And are they, if you do see them, are there any differences with team members? Again, I just, we're all people, but I think that leader slash manager has different day-to-day activities and uh, interactions with people that are going to be slightly different than a a team member to team member interaction. So are there different things that you're focusing on and different things that you're seeing those two different roles stumble on when they're working on those, these interpersonal skills? Well, I want to point out that you're right. Your intuition is right that the managers and leaders, someone in a higher position, you know, a plus one or plus two has an outsized influence on psychological safety because of course they do. They're in a position of power. And so what they say is going to be heard more closely. And so as far as like stumbling blocks that we come across, gosh, I, that's a hard question to answer. It seems like to us, what we find is, again, if, especially if we're working with, a, say, a leadership team or an executive team, everyone on that team is both, except for maybe the CEO, is both a manager and a team leader or a, a manager and a team member, right? They're, they fill both of those roles. And so um, we, what we find is that there's just a, a lot of appreciation for how other folks handle interpersonal um, situations. Because one of the things that we do is we have these stimulus videos and then people respond to them and we can share and discuss how different people are responding and there's no, this is kind of the beauty of this type of work. And, and it's also part of the challenge. There is no right answer. It's not like, what's the right math formula here? <laughs> there are processes and internal, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, mental models that you want to be employing. And ultimately you can have three, four, five people all responding to the same stimulus in totally different ways. And, and it's like, wow, that was really good for this reason. And that response was really good for that reason. So we find a lot of really great um, appreciation for how other people are interacting to the same stimuli. And it brings a lot of, um, I think, empathy and understanding about the people in your team because you see how they're interacting to these challenging moments and you're seeing how they're trying to tackle them. And I don't think that's answering your question, though, Jeff, is it? I'm not answering your question about how do it's, people stumble and fall. Yeah, I, I mean, it's close. But also, I guess, as you were even talking, I was curious um, for those videos are do you have ones that are targeted at leaders and do you have ones that are targeted at team members? Right. Like I, I can imagine, you know, putting my manager hat on where a team issue has been elevated by the team and they're not able to come to consensus. And so they're asking a manager for help. Right. Um, or maybe even more directed, like shot across the bow, like, hey, something happened with team members and now you've got a conversation with HRs involved or something like that. Um, And how do you continue to think about these things from a psychological safety perspective, an interpersonal skills perspective versus, you know, some inter-team conflict that came up at a retrospective of some sort and you're a team member there. How would you step in and handle that? Or how would you give feedback to other team members or something like that? So, uh, with that explanation, are your videos more targeted at just general people with interpersonal skills or are they targeted like here's the manager and leader track for interpersonal skills and here's the uh, independent or uh, individual contributor uh, path? Um, The short answer is both. So we have 
a growing library. And I say growing because we're constantly adding new clips uh, as we do this work and as we encounter different teams. You know, you might have a product development team, you might have a R&D team, um, I don't know, a law team, the legal department, their needs are different. And what emerges within their teams are different as well. So we're constantly trying to add scenarios that are appropriate and relevant to different types of teams, as well as the leaders and or the, the team members, because everyone ultimately is responsible for psychological safety. Sure, the leader or manager might have an outsized influence, but it's everybody's responsibility, uh, including, you know, the newest member who just joined last week. How do you, I think like, I don't know, a pitfall I could see people falling into, there becomes a focus on psychological safety and they, it falls more into that ruinous empathy that, uh, you know, Kim Scott has inside of there. It falls into that quadrant where now we're so sensitive to everything we're saying that we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. So we don't say anything that's hard or we avoid all those things. You know, maybe we go to the tactical things or the easy things um, instead of approaching the hard subjects that we know are going to be very controversial and difficult to talk about. Like, do you see that happening? And if you, if you feel like that's starting to happen, like, what do you do if you're on one of those teams? Uh, that definitely happens. So that is definitely one of the pitfalls and one of the things that we're trying to overcome with the training is to, uh, because I think it's not that, you know, it's, it's like the elephant in the room. Everybody sees it, but they don't know how to bring it up. And one of the participants in our training, he said, oh, it's, this is great. This is helping me know what to say when I don't know what to say. <laughs> so, uh, and the answer to like what to say when you don't know what to say, how to point out the elephant in the room is a, a strategy or a skill rather that we call reflecting process. So as a manager or even as a team member, anybody really, the skill of reflecting process is to point out, like uh, take yourself out of the field. You know, when you're on the field, you're on the field and you can only see certain things. You have to take yourself up into the stands and you need to be observing the team from above. And you need to be able to do that sort of psychologically and say, here's what I'm noticing. And just point mm -hmm. out what you're noticing. I'm noticing that everyone seems to be pretty comfortable talking about what they did over the weekend, but not uh, about that critical incident that occurred last week. Um, and I don't know if people just have nothing to say or if folks are maybe a little bit afraid to say something. So anybody else noticing that? <laughs> See, that's a way of just shining a light on what it is that you see and doing so in a very inviting manner. You're not criticizing anybody. You're just shining a light on what it is that you see. And you might be totally wrong. You might go, I'm noticing X, Y, and Z. And folks might go, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't notice that at all. In fact, I think the opposite is true. Well, that's great too, because at least you said it, right? At least you put it in the room you thought it was an issue. No one else agreed. And okay, great. Well, let's move on. Is that helpful? That reflecting process, re shining a light on what you see by taking yourself off of the playing field and up into the stands. Mm -hmm. I think that works as long as there's still level, some level of psychological safety, right? Like if we think there is, or we talk about it, but then there isn't, then will people even be like, ah, I just can't even bring that up. Like we, you know, so I guess someone's got to go first. Um, somebody's got to go first, give that direct, you know, 
feedback on this observation. This The team's got to respond, hopefully, in a positive way. And so that person feels comfortable doing it again, sets an example that that's what we want. And I think it probably takes it on a level of awareness for the team or the manager or whomever the leader is in that, in that area to say, like, even if they don't agree, like, they can't just shoot this down. They've got to be able to, like, hey, th- this is the type of stuff I want to have happen. I want these things to be brought up. I want the direct feedback. Um, so this is great. I don't know if I agree on this specific tactical thing, but, like, this example of bringing it up, we should be doing this all the time. Like, I think that could be a really powerful thing. Um, but it takes in the moment somebody to be like be able to think meta level on what just happened inside of a maybe a harder conversation, you know. And, and that that is no easy skill. That skill yeah. of having that sort of meta perspective. It's what we call the bystand perspective. So we're often, especially as leaders, we're in a, what we would call a a mover position. Like we're moving things forward. And, uh, and as a team member, you might be in that follower position, right? Where you're just, okay, here are the marching orders I'll do. And what it requires is someone moving into that bystand position to be able to pull themselves off of the field and, and in the stands, as I mentioned, to reflect back what they're noticing. So, uh, I agree. It's not easy, especially if the first time you try it, it gets shut down, right? Or you don't get Mm -hmm. quite the response you were hoping for. Um, that is absolutely the case. That will definitely happen if there is a lower level of psychological safety. And I think it just requires uh, try and try again. So Stefan, at this time, is there anything you want to plug to our users about, I don't know, yourself, psychological safety, your organization, your training that you've been doing? Yeah, sure. So as I mentioned, the first step is to measure that which you can measure, you can change. So Um, what I'd love to offer to your listeners is the opportunity to measure psychological safety. And I'd be happy to do that for you. I mean, you can just Google the questions and, and, uh, administer the assessment yourself, or you can bring someone like myself in to, um, do it for you and act as that independent third party voice to be able to a measure the psychological safety and, and perhaps more importantly, debrief those results with your team. So I'll, I'll make sure that we create a safe environment. We introduce everybody to the concept of psychological safety, and then uh, we can um, have a bit of a conversation there to figure out what your organization, what your team wants to do next with this information. And, uh, and so that can be found at our website, zarango.com forward slash free PSI. So free PSI, PSI standing for psychological safety index and i'd uh, love for everybody to just go on there and fill out the form and uh, and we'll have a conversation about psychological safety in your team thank you for listening to the agile wire we are consistently inspecting and adapting ourselves we would appreciate feedback at feedback at the agilewire.com or on itunes spotify or google play store see you next time